Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about giving professionals the tools that they need to make themselves and their businesses as successful as possible. And we are wrapping up our career planning series with an absolutely fabulous guest today. I've been having so much fun this month learning about new careers, how to advance your career, what to do on LinkedIn, how to interview, all these various things. And today we're going to be talking more towards, shall we say, the youngsters of the world, but we will be talking about new careers, new trends, all sorts of things. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Brian Schreiner to our program today. Welcome, Brian. Good morning. How are you? Thank you for having me. You know, this really is going to be so much fun today because I was telling you before we started recording, I'm going to geek out a bit because of some of the things that that you do, which don't even really pertain to the program, but I'm just going to geek out anyway. Um, But before we get there, let me tell people just a little bit about you. So appointed dean in 2011, Brian has over 26 years of higher education, teaching, and administrative experience. Under his leadership and the faculty's expertise at Florida International University, or FIU, the College of Communication, Architecture, and the Arts, which is CARTA, has ascended to national prominence. Brian uses his career planning expertise through the interest he takes in education and students. His overriding mission is to give all graduating students the educational background and training to seamlessly find the professional positions they seek. Dr. Schreiner is actively helping students prepare to succeed in their future careers through the innovative programs he has developed for the College of Communication, Architecture, and the Arts at FIU. So again, Brian, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, it really is something, you know, I, I love talking to people in education and, you know, obviously uh, higher education. I spent a couple of years teaching at Metro State University in Denver. I'm one of those people who has several degrees just because, you know, silly me, I, I like uh, to, to, to do uh, education, all those various things. But what fascinates me is to see how universities are changing and adapting to add new careers. You know, when I graduated from college way back in, <clears throat> we won't say that number, um, I got a degree, my my um, bachelor's degree was in social sciences. Oh. I know, you know, it's one of those, we really don't know what to do. So we're going to get one of those degree type of things. But, you know, back then you you got very general type of degrees. And now they are so specific. And I love that. But you've really taken um, Carta and, and ed, you know, have quite a few new things. So first, you know, let's let's talk. Uh, I'm See, I told you I was going to geek out. Um, you guys offer so many different programs just through this this part of the university. What all you know, and, and I know you offer many, many, many degrees. But what are some of the the programs that that you really are most proud of? Well, let uh, let me let me put something in perspective first because you know you talk when you went to college and when I went to college, you know, students often say, you know, you you graduated in the last century, right? 
which like sticks in your brain a little bit like, yeah, we did graduate quite some time ago. You know, what prepares us for preparing them for, for the careers of today? Mm-hmm. It is something to keep in mind that the world is changing so so quickly and that the universities in general, if they're not able to adapt as quickly, you know, if it takes four years on average, maybe sometimes longer to get through your undergraduate curriculum, the world mm-hmm. has changed many, many times. Right. Those four years. So if you start a curriculum and you graduate four, five years later and it's out of date, what happens to that student that you took their their tuition and told them they were going to be prepared. So that's kind of the the operating procedures that we have in CARTA, mm-hmm. trying to stay ahead of the curve, mm-hmm. thinking about what the student or students, and we don't have always traditional students too. They're not all 18 to 22 year old. Right. You know, we have adult learners as well who have come back, mm-hmm. get a graduate degree or even finish an undergraduate degree. And most of our students are getting their degrees because they want to enter the world of work or they want to or a profession. I like profession better than the world of work, but mm-hmm. they come back for that skill set. So if the degree you're providing them does not give them a competitive advantage, then it's not necessarily a good investment for them. You know, they may learn something and be more well-rounded, but in today's world, many people are looking to the university to prepare them for a profession. Mm-hmm. So the degrees that we put together in CARTA basically are around trying to tie that curriculum with the profession, create as many internships as we possibly can that make sense pedagogically within the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So the student is learning on that internship and they get a taste for that career. So we're one of the few universities in the country that have, by design, combined a school uh, under under one dean, but combined a uh, school of journalism and communication, a school of music, a school of architecture with departments in art, art history, uh, art education, theater, etc. So we've got the visual arts, the performing arts, design and communication all in one college because the provost uh, believes that, and, and I do as well, that that connective thread is creativity. And in the 21st century creative information economy, it makes sense to have the disciplines thinking and planning uh, together, and where possible, creating interdisciplinary opportunities for students to to go beyond the silo of their home department, to take courses, to get experiences uh, in, a, in other disciplines that prepare them for the world that they're about to enter in terms of, of, of the workforce. Right. <clears throat> you know, and you mentioned being able to, you know, when you graduate, having those skills and that is difficult for universities. You know, I, I mentioned that I taught at Metro State, and this was less than 10 years ago. I taught a business communications class, mm-hmm. and nowhere in the textbook, I mean nowhere, was social media. Now, you know, granted, this was 10-ish years ago, but at the same point, you know, we had LinkedIn, we had Facebook, we had all of those things. And I actually had to ask permission because it was, you know, it was, it was a class that was taught by multiple people. So I had to ask permission to be able to add one lecture, <laughs> one lecture about social media. And that just baffled me, you know, because 
and and when I mentioned that to them, they said, yeah, we know, but it is such a process to get things changed. And of course, you know, getting textbooks printed was, you know, obviously one of the things. Anytime you're, you're writing a book, it, you know, you write it and then by the time, you know, it's, it's published, it is out of date. And, and textbooks in particular are even more difficult to do all of that. But it, it was a challenge as, you know, from the, the teaching point of view to, have to follow the curriculum, but be able to give uh, students the, the tools that they needed. And I love that you really have developed this very flexible program with many, many degrees. I mean, you know, like I said, you know, when, when I graduated, there were, you know, a, a, there, I'll say a handful, but, you know, handful compared to the numbers now. So the students of today can get so specific on what they want to do. I just love that. Yeah, it's it's kind of a paradox because they're specific yet general enough that it can change. So, right. for the faculty of the of the university, um, for lack of a better term, control the curriculum. You know, mm-hmm. it's their curriculum. Right. So it's important to work with the faculty to develop a curriculum that can be nimble. Mm-hmm. So, if you hire folks who are energetic, tie themselves to the community. You sprinkle in working professionals, whether it's full-time or part-time faculty, then you have a connection to what the students need. Mm-hmm. Also, the, the old, you mentioned textbooks, the sort of traditional paper textbook, you know, that may cost $200 that mm-hmm. you open or not open, depending on how much the, <laughs> the book or told you to read it, mm-hmm. is not as common as it once was. So right. a lot of the books are digital. Mm-hmm. It can be updated immediately. Mm-hmm. And they link to things on the internet and to exercises and they can be much more practical mm-hmm. and useful. And the old adage, the sage on the stage where the faculty member comes in and lectures for you know 45 minutes or an hour and a half, mm-hmm. you take notes and then go away. That doesn't exist either any longer. Right. So it's much more interactive classroom. Students have laptops or mobile devices open on their desks that they're using as part of the lecture. It's a lot more engaged learning where students do as opposed to just absorb mm-hmm. and then, um, circle A, B, C, or D on a test or, or maybe write an essay. So it's much more engaged, active learning than it was, say, when we went, mm-hmm. went to school, which prepares them for work because work is not about absorbing information. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, it, it's tricky from the professor standpoint when everyone you're looking at is on some type of device, you know, a laptop, an iPad, whatever, because you do wonder, <clears throat> are they paying attention to me? But, you know, if you're not a good enough professor to keep their attention, then that's what the problem is. Um, you know, and, and sure, you know, I, I, it, somebody might pop off and check their Facebook status or, you know, these demographics on Instagram, Snapchat, you know, all those various things. But if you are giving them content that is interesting, they will be paying attention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as we talk about, you know, the work environment changing, it has changed for academics as well. Mm-hmm. You know, what used to be normal is not normal any longer. What skill sets used to be in demand are not as much in demand. You know, access to information has never been easier. Mm-hmm. So you're not the owner of that information. Right. Uh, People can look that information up. Mm-hmm. Now it's a little, it's, it's different. The skill set for the faculty member is, is different than it was 15, 20 years ago. Right. 
Well, and you know, so you're up there lecturing, and somebody says, "Excuse me, according to Google," blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know? and so it, it's the the good thing is it's making the faculty continually learn and update. Also, I mean, you know, way back when I went to school, I knew that that some of the the faculty I had had not updated their skill set, their knowledge, all those various things in many years. And now that's the cool thing is the faculty has to be so on top of things, or even more importantly, ahead of some of the trends and, and things like that, that that's what makes, you know, going back to school now, you know, whether the first time, second time, you know, you're, you know, whatever it is that you're going back to school for, it is so fascinating to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about, if I were to ask you, what were some of the skill sets you would look for if you were hiring someone, regardless of the discipline, Mm -hmm. what would be some of the things you would look for in that person? Well, those are the same things we look for in the faculty. Right. Right. So, so what would be some of those things? Like you might want someone who's good at problem solving. Mm -hmm. You might want someone who's communicates well, you know, verbally and, and works well with others, teamwork, interpersonal. You might want someone who can manage him or herself, who's a self-starter, someone with a positive attitude. And, you know, the list could go on and on. But those skills then have to be uh, integrated into the curriculum. So when the student is learning, they're learning to problem solve, Mm -hmm. that they're learning to analyze data, that they're given opportunities to improve their written and verbal communication skills, that they're work in teams to problem solve, which has a communication aspect to it, right? That you don't give them all the information. You give them information so they can become self-reliant and a self-starter and manage oneself. And, you know, again, I could go on, Mm -hmm. but the idea is that type of learning is very different than the one, okay, I'm going to give you a 50-minute lecture on the history of X. Right. You take all the notes because you can get off of the, the the access to that information is, is, is readily available. Mm-hmm. And that's not what I believe employers would be looking for. Right. Looking for those other skill sets. So, well, and you mentioned the key thing. When they graduate, they're ready to enter the, the professional workforce. You know, when I got my degree, you know, in social science, what the heck do you do with that? I mean, you know, and 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 even, you know, five, ten years ago, people got their degrees and they went, Okay, now what? You know, and, and so now part of the curriculum is teaching them so many more things. You know, we, we mentioned specifics, but also the generalities, you know, it, making them take business classes when they're in, say, the architecture school. I'm, and I'm making this up. I'm not sure if this is, you know, part of your program or not, but we do. yeah. We have them take business classes as mm-hmm. part of the architectural program. Right. You know, I, I have a, a, a friend who, um, went to study how to be a comedian at Second City. I mean, you know, and they actually have their program in, in Chicago where they, you know, they train people to be comedians and performers. But a part of that requirement was that they had to go to business school. And that was because, you know, they said you might be rich and famous, you might not, but you'd better be able to negotiate a contract. You'd better be able to invest your money, all those various things. And and I love those type of programs now. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, a lot of our disciplines, especially in visual performing arts, are the students are going to be entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. how they go about pursuing what they do. Right. It's important for us to have entrepreneur skills into the curriculum so students understand the basics of business, mm-hmm. 
basics of startups, uh, promoting oneself. Um, so those, those lists of things like problem solving, data analysis, blah, blah, blah. Where do you put them on your, on your CV? Well, mm-hmm. you generally don't. You give examples. And when you interview, if you're fortunate enough to get the interview from the, uh, from the application or the resume that you submitted, then you have to demonstrate them in the interview. Mm-hmm. Give examples from the curriculum of how you, uh, you learned those skills. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to put on your, I don't think you would put on your resume great problem solving skills. Like, okay. You used to. I mean, you know, and, 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 and it's funny because, you know, when I've talked to people, especially during this last month, they have said, stop putting that on there. You know, great problem solver. I mean, some of those things are kind of like, well, duh. I always love it. Like in advertising, if they advertise clean restrooms, really, you're, you're going to advertise dirty restrooms. I mean, you know, so many things now are a given that you shouldn't put them on there because the person reading your resume overlooks that. And there's far more important things you need to be putting there. Right. So for example, you could give the example of Mm -hmm. problem solving skills, as opposed to giving the generic ability to solve problems, give some specifics of problems you've actually solved. And if you're in a curriculum where you're in a problem solving curriculum, there's plenty of examples of problems that you, real world problems that you were given, uh, that you worked on. Mm -hmm. Whether you solve them or not is a different different issue but you you work towards a resolution right you know and and it's interesting especially for students and especially <clears throat> younger students excuse me <clears throat> who don't have specific work experience one of the things and and you know we we talked about it a lot in this last month and then i've always talked about it you know is is especially on linkedin you can talk about the things that you learned and projects you did and all those various things just because you didn't get paid for them doesn't mean it wasn't a skill. And that's the thing that I really like about LinkedIn or, you know, now shoot, you know, kids, kids, <clears throat> youngsters, whatever they are, have, you know, they have their own websites where they might have videos that talk about their problem solving skills or a project that they worked on. And that's, again, that's some of the cool things that technology is allowing us to do. We no longer hand somebody a one page or two page um, document saying, here's my, you know, here's my resume. Now it's expanded so much. Exactly. We call them in our college um, portfolios. Right. So every student develops a portfolio mm-hmm. that's multimedia. Great. So it's not just a hard copy resume, but there's links to projects, there's links to their own web pages, there's links to work they've produced. Oh, the uh, much more sophisticated than it used to be. Mm-hmm. It's still, though, in, in, again, in my experience, a lot of networking. Right. So if the student is able to get an internship and be successful, you know, sixty percent of those internships turn into job offers. Mm-hmm. Without that internship, he or she may not have had that job offer. Right. So they exhibit their skills. And that's why, to us, it's important that the student have experiential learning. They learn by doing. Mm-hmm. And in many times, they might think, oh, I really didn't want to do that. <laughs> and that's okay. Then they have time to change. <laughs> exactly. It does give them a chance to change. Like, oh, no, this isn't. I thought this was going to be something completely different. Mm-hmm. And we have faculty who, um, and staff who work with the employer uh, to ensure that the internship is not clerical. 
that this, that if we place them someplace, they're actually getting exposed to the work they would potentially be doing and they're contributing in a meaningful way. So, you know, a lot of internships, unfortunately, can be clerical where you end up, you know, serving, uh, doing something outside of what right. you would, which can turn you off from that, that industry as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's obviously where you have to work with the organization who's providing the internship to say, okay, they're not coming here to file. <laughs> you know, maybe that's a little part of it, but that's, they're not here to do your, your grunt work as, as it might be. Exactly. And that, that requires a lot of coordination. Mm-hmm. It requires coordination and buy-in from the faculty uh, because essentially the student by doing the internship is earning college credit. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that the learning objectives, you know, what's supposed, what the student is supposed to, to get exposed to uh, can be assessed. Mm-hmm. And then they get a, a, obviously a grade uh, with the input of the person who's managing the internship, but assigned by the faculty member. So the faculty member has to be in contact with the uh, with the organization that's offering the internship, mm-hmm. well, which is and, very different. I mean, when we went to school, we had internships, and I'd say, "Just go get an internship over the summer, mm-hmm. or just you know, get a part time job." Mm-hmm. But now those are built right into the curriculum, mm-hmm. right? And they can be, you know, obviously for credit, and then sometimes they are paid also. Yes, and most of ours are paid. Mm-hmm. That's one of the requirements, and the federal government has some laws regarding what's an internship and ah. what students should be paid for the internship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's hard to distinguish, you know, a part-time job from an internship sometimes, but uh, most of our internships are for credit. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and it's funny, I'm remembering, it was like a Dear Abby or, you know, something like that that I, I read. Uh, and it wasn't all that long ago because it was, you know, the person was saying, you know, they're they're uh, son was getting ready to, uh, you know, finish the semester and was looking for internships. And it was just the funniest thing in the world because the, the person was saying, you know, dear Abby, I'm having trouble finding internships for my son. So clearly the university that, that this person was at didn't even help or they didn't know about it. But then she said, you know, anytime I call the, the businesses, they don't really talk about internships. And dear Abby's response was, well, maybe they want to talk to the, they, they want a student who has enough initiative to call themselves before they're going to discuss it. And, you know, and, and I thought about that and, you know, it was kind of tongue in cheek, but now we are, you know, expecting these 18 year olds, these 20 year olds, you know, these, these whatever to have those skills and that initiative and that gumption, so to speak, to be making those calls themselves, especially if it's, you know, maybe it's not something that's offered through their university or, or whatever. Um, and, and part of that is this training that they're getting from universities is how to have the, the ability to do that. Right. I think it goes back to some of those earlier skill sets we talked about, about self-initiative, self-management, self-starter. If someone's calling on your behalf, you may not exhibit those skills. You may not be, you know, desirable to the potential employer. Right. You know, and, and networking is important. You mentioned that word. And and sometimes it is that that person is making an introduction for you, but then you're taking it from there. Exactly. Exactly. So the opportunities, if you're, for those listening who, who have opportunities to uh, get involved on campus, I would encourage students to get involved in as many activities as, you know, they're curriculum permits them mm-hmm. to get involved in because it's through those 
those engagement opportunities that you'll meet people, mm-hmm. you'll hear from them, they'll, they'll hear from you as well. So get involved in those, uh, not just social fraternities, but business fraternities or professional fraternities, attend events on campus, attend events in the communities, lectures. Uh, uh, again, they all give you opportunities to, to expand mm-hmm. your, what, you're, what you're looking to accomplish. Right. And then as soon as you are you know, ready to, to truly go into the job market, really network. Um, you know, that's, that is obviously one of the things that I tell people about uh, a lot with LinkedIn is find the alumni who went to your university and connect with them. Um, you know, and, and, and go to events. It's, uh, that's great ways to meet people and alumni are, it, it is such, you know, if, if somebody had a, a good experience at a university, they, in many cases, want to help those who are are graduating from that university, whether it's, hey, I'll make a connection, you know, I'll introduce you, I'll take you to an event, whatever it is. Alumni is one of the best sources of networking that someone can can utilize. I would agree. I would agree. So if you're not, if you haven't joined your alumni association, I would also recommend people do that. Right. Take advantage of that alumni network that they have. And it's for all ages. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm part of the University of Colorado Alumni Foundation here in Atlanta, and we reviewed scholarship applicants. So uh, kids who were in Atlanta wanting to go to the University of Colorado had applied for scholarships that we had. And one of the questions was, when you graduate, how will you give back, basically? And three of the 21 students, so, oh, gosh, I can't do that percentage in my head. Um, but three of them said, when I retire, I will do X. And I thought, wow, that's really sad that they didn't think that they could participate as alumni the day after they graduated. Um, you know, and, and it is kind of a misnomer. A lot of times we think, well, alumni are those old folks who give lots of money. Sure. And yes, th- that is some alumni, but they have, you know, the under 40 chapters, you know, all these various things. So, you know, I, again, if you're not involved in your alumni foundation, why the heck not? We have something, I, I don't know if it's unique, but it's it's pretty special. It's called PAW, P-A-W. Mm-hmm. The, the university logo is a panther, so it's oh, okay. PAW, mm-hmm. Panther Alumni Week. Mm. And even during graduation, um, we ask students to to give back mm-hmm. to the alumni association, but we again, call it time, talent, and treasure. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to give money necessarily. Mm-hmm. You could do your time and your talent. And during Panther Alumni Week, alumni come back and talk to the students. Mm-hmm. They go into the classroom and a faculty member invites them and they just talk to them about their experience after graduation, perhaps their story about how they got their job or what hurdles they encountered or what hurdles they're still encountering. And a lot of the alumni that come back are relatively recent alumni, Mm -hmm. which is good, which is good because the students can identify with them. Someone two, three years out saying, okay, we're almost at the same place in our careers. Right. What can I learn from you? Mm -hmm. It's a little different when someone's been out 30 years and comes back and talks to you because they're talking to you from a different place in their career and Mm -hmm. they may not fully understand what you're going through at the moment. Uh, equally valuable, but maybe not 100% relevant to the student uh, listening to someone who's just a few years out, mm-hmm. telling them, this is my experience, this is what I did, uh, this is what worked, and this is what didn't work. Right. 
Well, and of course, you know, we as that older demographic, a lot of times we have this poor impression of millennials of you you have Gen Zs now, right? Um and and that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, I I through this program, through several things that I do, I work with millennials and there's just as many lazy in in whatever it is or those who feel entitled, you know, all those various things. But there are so many millennials that I have talked to who are phenomenal. I mean, I have just been so impressed with their work ethic, with, you know, their, their drive, their ambition. And so I'm inspired when I talk to them. Yeah. And, and, and I would agree with you, rightful, rightfully so. I mean, what we talked about earlier, just their education is completely different. Mm-hmm. It's much more engaged. Right. It, it's harder. I mean, it, it's not just about absorbing information. It's a lot about applying that information mm-hmm. during, during their college careers. And when we were in school, uh, and it, this changes every couple of years too, the technology is in rapid acceleration mm-hmm. of so the access and the ability to use the technology. I mean, even, you know, we're talking to each other via the internet. Right. Um, you know, why didn't we use the phone? I don't know, because the internet is where we should be talking. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> we have the technology. Wasn't that what the $6 million man? We have the technology. <laughs> and students today or young adults today uh, have are accustomed to using the technology. It's their first choice. Mm-hmm. Where we may think of it, at least myself, may think of it as something in addition to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, three D printers, which we have, you know, quite a few of them in the college. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when we introduced them, I was the first one to say, "Okay, why are we getting these? Somebody please explain yeah, to me why we why do we spend so much money on these?" <laughs> uh, and I'm like, "Wow, okay." And then people are coming from all over the community mm-hmm. to get access to the technology to look at a three D printer and what was novel is now very commonplace what we use the 3d printer for just like we use a desktop printer for very common when it first came out our handheld calculator was like wow i got a calculator right. well now you we- know i never really touched a computer until i was in college um and then it was a dumb terminal where you know you you basically had a keyboard and a monitor and the the big computer was off somewhere in a different room and you know, it, that was, was how we function. And now you're right. I mean, kids grow up, you know, they, their parents have created a website for them before they're born. <laughs> and, you know, all these various things. So it's, it's gotta be, it, 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 we've said it's a challenge to keep up with all of these things because, you know, it, it is, it is changing so rapidly. I mean, this may sound odd, but one of the things that I, ask students often is when I was growing up, there was no such thing as Microsoft office. Mm -hmm. So now it's common that everyone knows how to use office. Well, what's Microsoft office. So you're your own, you have to be your own editor, your own writer, right? Your own graphic designer, your own presentation maker, your own accountant, so to speak. You have to understand spreadsheets and it's just a common baseline skill. Mm-hmm. Well, 25, 30 years ago, that was not a baseline skill that everyone could do those right. things. So that's just the entry level that, you know, I don't know of any job today that doesn't require people to have a 
not an understanding, proficiency in Microsoft Office. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, we were talking about resumes before. Oh, I still see them on occasion that say proficient in Microsoft Excel. And I'm thinking, yeah. really? Who, who's not? Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and the fact that they're putting things like that on their resume makes me wonder, you know, it's because they, they, it, to me, it's showing that they don't have other skills. So it's like, oh my gosh, I better say I'm good at Excel. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's interesting though that the level, of expectation to enter the workforce or profession is much higher right. today than it was before. Mm-hmm. Okay. Much, much higher. Yeah. So going back to the what role the university plays, if, if the university is not attuned uh, to the professions and communicating with them on a regular basis and not just talking to them but partnering with them mm-hmm. uh, through advisory boards, through – uh, part-time faculty positions through master classes, through lectures, through full-time faculty positions, through internships, you can quickly become disconnected mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, you have a captured audience, so to speak, not, not as true as it used to be because students are much more mobile. They can take classes at other institutions virtually, you know, they can transfer to other institutions more readily than they could before. So it's not as if once they're in, they're never going to leave for something else. Uh, but if you may not be preparing them well if you don't have that built-in uh, pipeline of information from the profession. Right. I, I think, you know, if any, if there's any takeaway from anybody listening who's at an institution, that's, to me, one of the most important things. Well, staying with the professions you're trying to feed. Right. And if you're looking at, you know, going to school, whether it's going back to school, you know, you mentioned finishing your degree, or maybe you are 18 years old or, or you know, whatever, you really should be looking at those programs. You know, are they connected to the business world? You know, when you get out, will you be able to hit the ground running? Or is it like, oh, my gosh, now I have to go back and get another degree because I don't know how to do this or, or do that? Exactly. And a lot of universities, ours included, are moving towards badging or short courses. Mm. You may not need uh, uh, 120 credits to be able to become uh, credentialed in an area. Our School of Communication and Journalism, for example, in our journalism department, has instituted eight one-credit seminars. Cool. These are based on what's happening at the moment and what they feel the students who are entering journalism, which is a rapidly changing oh, profession. Holy schmoly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what they might need. And it could be emphasis on a piece of technology or how to use something or thinking about something or problem solving, but it's enabled them to change that curriculum drastically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also used to be a curriculum that was pretty uh, heavy on upper division, which means it was mostly for juniors and seniors. Mm-hmm. Freshmen and sophomores might get a little bit involved, but mostly they were taking general education credit. Mm-hmm. They did away with it. They said, no, and if you're going to develop writing skills or broadcast skills, you need to be in as a freshman honing those skills from the very beginning, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm very proud of them for that because uh, that that broke the mold. Right. What was what we were, quote unquote, accustomed to doing and what was easy. Mm-hmm. We have, uh, you know, uh, conversations around here led by a president often that says, just because we've done it in the past, please don't use that as a reason for why we're doing it today. Mm -hmm. Right. Don't start with, because we've always done it, therefore we'll keep doing it. He said, 
put that aside and say, even because we've, even though we've done it in the past, should we still be doing it? Right. And, and maybe that's the case, but most of the time it's not. Well, and you mentioned journalism, and that really is, you know, obviously that's something near and dear to my heart, but it it is changing rapidly isn't even the right word for that because, you know, we have, especially because of social media, because of the technology, you know, anyone can say they're a journalist, you know, they, they can have their own YouTube channel, you know, when, when people are being credentialed into major events because they're a blogger, you know, you used to be, you had to be, say, you know, a reporter for a reputable, uh, not reputable, a, 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 a recognized, um, media outlet before you could get into these things. And now it's like, well, hey, I'm a blogger. I'm going to go into, to whatever it is. And so they're being credentialed in. And then, you know, without going into the political aspects of things, we do have this thing, you know, th- this phenomenon of, yes, there is fake news, but there is also the, non-substantiated news where people are and and especially media outlets are reporting things incorrectly because they have to keep up um they don't have time to fact check you know when when i was doing pr we had to give them you know our, our you know so much information and now they just run with stories and so it's it's got to be a challenge to actually want to be a journalist now yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to get on my soapbox, but I've been on this for a couple years. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very concerned. Uh, let's start with the premise. You do not need a degree to practice journalism. Right. That's, you can just say, Hey, I'm a, I have my own YouTube channel. Unlike, you know, some of the other professions, mm-hmm. you need a license to practice the profession and that license requires some formal education and some credentialing and a passing of, uh, some test, et cetera. So if you're an engineer or you're uh, an architect, you know, these all have a lawyer, doctor, et cetera. But we still call journalism a profession, yet it's not a licensed profession mm-hmm. for, for good reason. The person who does my nails is is more certified than a journalist. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Having said that, though, I'm a big believer that um, journalism in higher education is essential for the future of an effective democracy. Yes. Why? Why? Because as in in the university or at a college, students will get exposed to a, a broader view of critical thinking. They'll hone those writing skills, but they also have an opportunity to learn by doing, mm-hmm. by learning about fact-checking and sourcing. They learn about ethics. They understand the importance of do no harm. Mm-hmm. And the university is a good place to learn those skills. Mm-hmm. If someone's n- not trained in those skills, the likelihood of doing damage is much higher. Mm-hmm. As you said, the business model today is just get it out there, uh, try to be first, and not necessarily have the background to source and double check to make sure that what you're putting out there is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you say, I like your term unsubstantiated. Uh, uh, and that can do harm, mm-hmm. not just to the individuals that you're writing about or speaking about or blogging about or whatever medium you're using, but also to the overall citizenry or everyone in, in decision-making um, 
you know, how we trust the information. What happens if we keep believing the information we're getting is not accurate? So there's been many, many times throughout the history of the country where people have questioned journalism as being truthful. Even Thomas Jefferson questioned it. He was an advocate for it, but he also questioned it. But uh, in today's climate, it's, I think, fair to say that there's a majority or close to a majority of people who generally are concerned about the accuracy of the information they get mm-hmm. through the media. Right. Um, and what does that mean for the future if we lose confidence in the information we're being given? Well, if universities decide that they no longer want to train journalists and they just want to train people in communication skills, which is a different skill set, obviously. Right. They don't invest in journalism schools. The impact, I think, will happen first locally because most journalism graduates are going to work local mm-hmm. at smaller smaller media outlets, whether that's you know, your hometown newspapers or – so who is going to be fact-checking what happens at the city council? Mm-hmm. Who's going to be mm-hmm. looking at the mayors? You know, and then bad things can happen as a result if there aren't trained journalists. So. So again, I didn't. I didn't mean to get on a soapbox, but I think journalism education is vital for the, for the country. Right. You know, and <laughs> and it it, it really is. It, it is something that obviously, as I said, is is near and dear to my heart. And it, it's hard for the consumer. You know, I guess is maybe the the easiest word to figure it out. You know, especially when you have say the, the major outlets where one has one point of view and another one has a different point of view. And, you know, and, and so, you know, the, as we say, you know, the truth is somewhere in between. But then we also have the people who are entertainers, who are truly an entertainer, but people get the impression that they are a media person, a, a news person, I should say. The people who think that, say, John Stewart, Rush Limbaugh, you know, they're on, on both sides of the spectrum where they're presenting things that are, and I'm putting this in my little air quotes here, and, and you know, we could we could go on this for hours and hours. They're presenting it as being the truth when it's actually their personal opinion. And I think that's one of the things that we just need to really watch for is, is it fact? And then, of course, you know, I, I took, you know, the statistics courses. You can make statistics and facts. You know, you can interpret them kind of how you want to. Um but has it been fact-checked or is it just somebody's opinion? And if it's somebody's opinion, that's okay. I just want to know it's their opinion. Correct. Yeah, and that used to, that that line between news and opinion editorial used to be hard and fast. You know, it was in a separate section of a newspaper labeled as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not any longer, especially broadcast. Right. The broadcast news is all jumbled together. Mm-hmm. Now it's called analysis, and even the front page of major newspapers will have news analysis. Mm-hmm. I really don't know the difference between news analysis and editorial, but maybe that's just me. Right. <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's changed considerably. So the the consumer has to be much more discerning mm-hmm. about where the information is coming from and what what does it mean. Right. And it goes back to to the importance of the university and being a critical thinker. Mm-hmm. And- if you're not training. Skills. And it is about being that critical thinker, um, you know, and, and looking at, say, somebody's Facebook post and going, 
okay, well, that doesn't sound quite right. Or even if you agree with it, making sure that you're agreeing for the right reasons. Um, you know, and, 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 and politics obviously is something that's, that's always going to be out there. And, you know, and, and it's funny as we say this though, I, I love the fact that, that we can have this, I'm not going to say problem situation. Um, and, and have all of these, you know, conversations about it. I have a friend who is living in China. She is teaching in, in China right now. And the, there are things I cannot send her in an email just because it won't get there. <laughs> you know, there are things that she can't send to me because it won't get there. You know, China is not on Facebook, all these various things. So, you know, it's, I, I love the fact that we actually can have these discussions. Yeah, we're blessed in, 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 in that regard and in, in many regards. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's kind of recurring. History repeats right. itself oddly in the, you know, when the radio was invented. Obviously, before our time, but and politicians used it. You know, FDR for his fire chi- mm-hmm. fireside chats reached many, many people. They thought, "Uh oh, he can say anything he wants, unfiltered, directly to the people." Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Donald Trump now uses President Trump uses Twitter. Right. Yeah, it's it's the same thing. People objected to the fireside chats. Now, you know, you had far fewer people objecting then, so that was was kind of the difference. But yeah, you know, and, and I guess what we're trying to say is. It's it's okay to question these things. Right. With the fireside chats and then with television, you still had to go through a network to get on the right. air. Or Now there's no... There's no filter. Or, yeah, there's no ownership mm-hmm. of the air. So you can go on the internet or go on Twitter or any social media channel or start your own mm-hmm. channel. Right. And it's not, for lack of a better word, filtered or validated or whatever you want to use. Very different, but you're... the society will catch up Mm -hmm. eventually figure out what means. Because we do kind of self-monitor these things. Right. Right now we're kind of in a technology revolution, so to speak, where the technology has outpaced our ability to quite absorb what it means in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. And back to work. I mean, back to, uh, to the world of work, people use social media and, uh, Skype for business and instant messaging and email and you name it all day long to communicate mm-hmm. with each other. Right. All forms of doing business through um, shared documents and you name it. Technology has become part of the normal workday. Mm-hmm. And those that can't use it uh, have trouble being productive. Mm-hmm. And or employed, right. or even not just being employed. Maybe they already are employed, but then have trouble getting promoted mm-hmm. to desirable, you know, positions they might desire because they're unable to participate in the the use of the technology that's required for that position today. Right. You know, and that again is where you know universities like yours are giving students. I almost said kids, but I realize that you know, as you mentioned, you do have non traditional students the skills to do these things. Um, you know, before we went on the air, I was talking about several people that I know who are digital nomads. You know, they, they work wherever they happen to be, um, around the world. You know, literally they, they, as long as they have an internet connection, they can travel and whether it's that their own business, which, you know, in, in most cases it is, or, you know, anymore, we can even have employees that do that. You know, I have a virtual assistant in Wyoming and I have a virtual assistant in New Jersey, you wow. know, and as long as we have the technology, 
it's it's okay to to do that and and that's where companies are adapting too you know i remember the big thing was work from home fridays yes and you know and, and now it's like really you want me to go in the office at, the off or, or companies don't even have offices. Big companies, um, you know, they have you know they're allowing their workers to work from home. And, and of course, when that originally came about, people went, "Well, they're not going to do the work." I, you know, okay, that's a different problem, and you just have to make sure that um, you know, obviously, that you trust your employees to be able to do the work from home. But giving them the flexibility is many times going to create a much more stable and um, uh, valuable workforce for you to, to allow them to, to have that freedom. I agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, not only do they you know, work offsite, but the, they use technology to be able to work offsite and they're much more productive mm-hmm. in many right. and, and actually work more hours. They do. <laughs> if, you know, a lot of times they do, they end up working more. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't even know, I tend not to equate productivity with the number of hours, but you know, I'm sure you and everyone else listening will say, I've gotten an email at, you know, five 30 in the morning from someone. You wouldn't get a phone call from somebody at five 30 in the morning. You might get an email from someone. Uh, I was accustomed to having folders and files. Mm -hmm. So the day before, please prepare the file so I can read it. And then now there's no files. They're all virtual. So they say, the SharePoint or it's on the shared drive or it's on whatever, you know, cloud, uh, click on it and it's all there for you. And I, I'm updating it as the day goes along. And you're like, wow, that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, and, and remembering where and remembering to save it, you know, I'm, I'm one of the, I'm like, Oh, did I save that? Or, you know, all those various things, um, you know, and, and, but it, it allows us, you know, maybe you are a person that works better at two o'clock in the morning. You know, as long as you're getting the work done, who cares that it's done at two o'clock in the morning? Now, obviously there are challenges if you're on a team you know, and, and things like that, but that's where, Having the flexibility and and knowing about it, you know, is is going to work. Um, you know, we can have employees around the world. We can collaborate around the world. All those various things. Morning, because the other part of the world is in the middle of the afternoon mm-hmm. too. So you know, there's a it, it's just a completely different environment than perhaps with techno because of technology than what we were accustomed to. So the university is not preparing. Uh, its graduates to use that technology to be productive and to understand it, mm-hmm. but not just learn how to use it because the technology will change. Mm-hmm. So you have to be, uh, you have to learn to learn, right? It's not just learn to use MySpace, which no longer exists. Oh no, now what do I do? Well, it's not about using that. It's about using the technology uh, and embracing the, the next technology. And in many of our degrees, the students are creating the technology. Mm-hmm. We have wonderful hackathons that the students uh, participate in and come up with their own apps or their own way of of looking at data visualization or something, which they're not just learning to use technology, they're actually driving the, the creative economy. We have a partnership with uh, Richard Florida, who's joined the college. He's the author of the creative class. Mm-hmm. And through a grant we received, yeah, him and myself are looking at the future of South Florida, Miami largely, creative economy and what that means, what those jobs are, where where there's gaps, mm-hmm. 
how the university can be not just filling the gap, but leading the conversation by providing decision makers with information about where the economy is going or where the economy should be going. So again, very different role of an institution than say 30 years ago. Right. Well, we've only got, you know, several minutes left. And, and so let's talk more about specifically FIU and, and the CARTA programs in, in, you know, very specifically. What trends do you see coming up? I mean, you guys offer several thousand degrees, um, which I just find fascinating, which, you know, it, it clearly means that, you know, it, it long gone are the days where you had, you know, a thousand people that graduated with the same degree. Now, as you mentioned, you know, they're very specific. What trends do you see, you know, that are, are coming up with, with new things that you're going to hopefully be offering? Perfect. Well, one of the things um, I sort of mentioned earlier, FIU is the fourth largest, fifth largest, one of the top five, six universities in the country in terms of the number of students enrolled. So okay. we're 56,000 students enrolled in the institution. Wow. So I'm assuming many of those are virtual students taking online classes? Enrollment, uh, but there's still over 40-some thousand you know, face-to-face students. Holy yeah. cow. But, a, but a, even the face-to-face students take online courses okay. or what we call your hybrid, mm-hmm. where the course meets partly face-to-face and partly uh, virtually. Uh, So you're looking at a very large institution with about 70% Hispanics, Mm -hmm. uh, about 70% female. Mm -hmm. So we have a unique demographic. The institution awards more undergraduate and graduate degrees to Hispanics than any other institution in the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, You say, well, that's that's interesting, but we actually reflect Miami. Right. Yeah, that's your demographics. Exactly. Uh, But we do have... uh, uh, as an R1 institution, Carnegie Highest Research Institution, uh, we're Miami's only public research institution. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as FIU goes, so goes Miami in terms of educating its workforce. Mm-hmm. So that's a very particular, important mission mm-hmm. for the institution. So we balance uh, this idea of access and excellence, mm-hmm. right? We want to maintain access to students to an affordable education, we still have one of the lowest tuitions in the country, Mm -hmm. tuition in the country. Uh, uh, But we want to make sure that when students enter, it's not just what comes in, it's more important what, when they leave, what skill sets they have. Uh, And the reputation of the institution is largely dependent, obviously, on its alumni and its faculty. Mm -hmm. Was it, was it value added to be here? Are they, uh, able to enter the world of work and be productive? Are they generating new knowledge and research through the, through the faculty, mm-hmm. et, et, et cetera? So, so the degrees we have in the college uh, range from general degrees, uh, which are broad-based degrees, say a degree in communication studies, where you'll get a lot of skill sets, which opens you up to many, many um, possibilities upon graduation through all sectors with, you know, because you're a good communicator using technology to communicate uh, to very specific graduate degrees, uh, you know, like the terminal degree in architecture or landscape architecture or interior architecture. Mm-hmm. So we run the gamut. Uh, students within these degrees, visual arts as well, students in these degrees, though, at the undergraduate level, especially, we incorporate uh, entrepreneurship and business skills as much 
applied learning, experiential learning as possible so that when they graduate, again, they have a competitive advantage and they're thinking about what they want to do upon graduation. We encourage every department uh, to have incorporate portfolios as part of the educational process. So when a student graduates, they're applying their skill sets and putting it in their portfolio. So they're not thinking about it, you know, two months before they graduate, like, okay, now right. what do I And do hitting this? panic mode. Exactly. <laughs> they're thinking about it from the very beginning. We have faculty and staff who serve as career uh, counselors for them. Their academic advisors, professional academic advisors can assist them or and or refer them to, uh, to experts who are charged with keeping contact with industry, making sure that uh, we know what they're looking for, whether it be a particular skill set or a particular characteristic or trait. Uh, we have job fairs for almost every one of our majors. The university has university-wide job fairs where they uh, get to come and, and meet with employers. Our School of Architecture in the college has a wonderful job fair where they first day uh, they let the potential employers give a, I think it's three to five minute overview mm-hmm. of their firm and all the students come and listen to the firms of which there's you know roughly 50. Wow. And then the next day they interview with the students. So the first day the firm pitches who they are and what they are about and what they're looking for. And then in the second day, the student actually interviews uh, with that firm based on, you know, they match, nice. they match skill sets with, you know, the, the emphasis or uh, uh, expertise of that mm-hmm. firm. Very similar in our school of communication and journalism where we have job fairs. Uh, so those are some of the things that we're trying to do logistically, strategically to keep up with the mm-hmm. trends. Again, I had mentioned earlier, if we're not in communication with industry, we quickly become out of touch and almost not irrelevant, but far less relevant. One of the things that the university serves as the, is as the credentialer. You know, we give certificates or diplomas or um, uh, some sort of acknowledgement that you have a certain skill set. And those can quickly become irrelevant if they're not validated in, in the mm-hmm. workforce, which hurts the college's credibility. Right. So if somebody, oh, I hired your student, but they don't know how to mm-hmm. do this. What good is that degree? Mm-hmm. We don't want that to be the right. case. We don't want that. Well, be. holy cow, we could go on talking about this forever. And, and I really could because I think it is so fascinating. But alas, we are at the top of the hour. So tell people how they find you and connect with you online. Uh, the easiest way is the university for all the degrees at the university and an overview of the university is, you know, FIU.edu, FIU.edu through through the webpage. The college specific page is CARTA, C-A-R-T-A, C-A-R-T-A dot F-I-U dot E-D-U. That's the easiest way through the, through the webpages. There you find an overview of the college, the degrees we offer, list of the faculty, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And you've got your contact information there. And so I encourage people, you know, contact Brian, reach out to him and, you know, and, and whether you're a potential student or an employer who's thinking, oh, my gosh, we want to get involved. You know, these these are great programs. Thank you. And as I mentioned before, we do have a very diverse, unique 
a demographic, which uh, a lot of employers are interested in learning more about. Perfect. Well, we have reached the top of the hour. I've been having an absolutely fabulous time today. I am Deb Creer. I have been talking with Dean Brian Schreiner, who is the Dean of Florida International University's College of Communication, Architecture, and the Arts. I think that's the longest title I've ever had a guest have. Um, and you know, please check them out at carta.fiu.edu. And until next time, everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.